welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, I'm, I'm excited about the, the picnic or carnival or extravaganza that we're going to have this afternoon. Um, I want to tell you a story about last week. Uh, my, my friend John Balfour and I, we were sledding with our families and uh, we were out in Fergus and uh, a photographer came from the, the world-famous Wellington Advertiser and uh, we made the front page. So put the picture up there. I know, I know. It's, uh, it's been difficult for me, John. I, I don't know about you, but uh, the paparazzi have just been all over me. I mean, it's, uh, it's been difficult, to say the least. So, but they say a picture uh, is worth a thousand words, and there is a story behind this picture that I, I do think is important to share. Um, so we were there with our families, and they, they were going down, and there was, uh, on one part of the hill, they had a, a, a nice big jump that kids had made out of snow. And it was about two feet high, and, um, and a lot of the kids were going for it, but they kept on, would eventually slide and would miss and go to the left. And so the photographer asked John and I if we would go or, or John volunteered. That's actually the true story. He said, we'll give you a picture. And, uh, and so we jumped on the, on the inner tube and we're going down. And the first time we kind of lined it up straight on for the, for the ramp. And sure enough, we went to the left and we missed it. Uh, and then we thought, <clears throat> let's try again. And so we, this time, lined it up to the right so that as we drift, we would hit the, the, the ramp. And then the kids jumped on our backs, as the picture shows. And, and I want you to show, I want to show the picture of John's face. A little blow up on this one. Look at the glee that John has as he sees that we're about 10, 15 feet away from actually hitting the ramp. And, and so I'm thinking, we're going to do it. We're actually going to hit the ramp. And so then some things start going through my mind. So here's my photo. Sheer panic. Sheer panic. Here's what's going through my mind. I'm thinking, oh dear. I did not think this one through. I am not as young as I used to be. My body is not as strong as it used to be. My back is really not in good shape. And I have all these kids on my back. This is not going to end well. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to hit the jump. The inner tube's going to go this way. And, and John's going to go that way. And the kids are going to go this way. And I, it's not going to be good. And so I have this moment of panic. Oh, dear me, what have I done? And I swear God thought the same thing. Because I felt like there was a nudge. I don't know if you felt it, John, but I felt a nudge. We actually went right. So we were drifting left, and then we went right at the last second. And we just sort of glanced off the, the ramp. And I lived to tell the tale. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, uh, I have zero regrets though, my friend. It was, it was a lot of fun going down with you and uh, simply just hanging out with you and your family, someone who I've loved to get to know these last five years. And uh, it's just been beautiful to experience memories like that. And I survived and I have a story to tell now. So, but I, I share that story because it fits in very much with what I want us to look at this morning, which is this idea of community. So in Genesis chapter 2, we read about how God creates Adam. And in verse 7, how he, he formed this body from the dust of the ground. He breathed into Adam this life, this spirit life. And as a result, his soul came alive. And, and so he created Adam and he places Adam in this garden of Eden, this, this paradise. But then he, he looks at, at Adam in this paradise and he makes this, this statement, this very famous statement. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not right. It's not good for Adam to be there. And so what does God do next? You would think he would make Eve. But that's not what he does. Instead, what he does is he begins to make animals. And I think it's like a, a, an object lesson for Adam because he would make each animal in their pairs. A, a male rhino and a female rhino and a male lion and a female lion. He's, he's making them over and over again and bringing them to Adam. And Adam's beginning to realize one, two, one, two, one. Where's my two? Where's the one like me? Where's the one that's suitable, that's, that fits me? And so when, when God starts to actually finish making all these animals, he, and Adam realizes there's, there's none like me here. 
So God puts Adam to sleep and he, he removes a rib and he fashions now, it says. It is this beautiful creation of Eve. Whereas Adam was a very simple creation, sort of like packing together a snowball. Ta-da! Eve is like making an ice palace. And he fashions this beautiful woman and he brings Eve, he brings this woman to Adam and Adam says, whoa, man. It's not what he says, right? He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Isn't that romantic, ladies? I know it's, it's hard when you hear those words, right? You, just, you melt, don't you, Cheryl? Right? Now we know what Norm whispers to Cheryl all this time. I always wondered, I imagine in the original language it rhymed or it sounded more romantic than it does. But really what he's declaring in that statement is this is the one like me. This is the one that's suitable. This is the one that fits me. And so together they became one. And what we're seeing here is that, that it wasn't right, it wasn't good, that God didn't want Adam to be alone because he had no one to share that life with. And the animals themselves weren't suitable. They, they, they needed someone else, not just to get love from. In fact, I think primarily it was to offer love to and share that love, share that life back and forth. Because the reality is the way that God made us is he's made us to be social beings. It's not just a matter of taste. It's not a matter of preference. It is who we are based on our design. But this morning, I want to I look beyond just marriage. We talked about marriage a, a few months ago when we were going through Ephesians 5. But instead, what I want to look at is a larger principle of community. Because re- reality is, <coughs> community is not only... <coughs> not only applicable to those who are in marriage, it's applicable to all of us. And so I want to look at this this bigger idea of of community and and show to you how critical it is, how important it is. Like warm socks and dry boots on on a cold, wet, rainy day, that's what we need in community. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 He put it this way, beginning in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This verse is not about, it's not meant to be a tool to to badger you and guilt you into coming into church on Sunday morning because that's not what it's about. Church is not about Sunday morning. Church is about when two or three are gathered, when the body of Christ comes together, whether that be on a Sunday morning, whether that be on a, a Monday night or a Wednesday night or a Thursday morning or any other time in the week. It's when the church comes together. And the point of that is that we would encourage and we would strengthen and we would love one another. Because this world will beat you up. And we consistently need that encouragement and that support. It's why Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he sent them out in pairs. Or Paul never went on a missionary journey on his own. Because you need that community. You need others around you. Now I know that there are some of you hearing that inside are beginning to shut down. Those introverts. Those people who are like, I I know it's right. I know it's good in principle, but um, I don't know. Let me say, I get you. You are my people. (laughs) I understand those feelings. Community has never been natural for me. It's never been easy. It's something that I I discovered later on in life and, and have to now actively choose to engage with. I think, I think part of that is why I'm so attracted to playing a goalie in hockey. See, the thing about a goalie is you're part of a team, but it's still a very solitary position. You don't have an, a defense partner or line mates. You're not there on the bench. You're kind of by yourself in the crease, but you're still part of a team. And so it's, it's there, but at an arm's length. And I think I always I was attracted to that idea because it felt safer that way. Because you see, I wasn't very comfortable in social situations. I'm still not very comfortable in social situations. So growing up in church, I, I didn't participate in the youth group because it was just, it felt overwhelming to me to, to do something like that, to, 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 be, uh, to be social and talk with other people and open up and be vulnerable. It was too terrifying for me. I was the guy that, that would show up just before church or right after church started and be the first guy out. 
I remember I've been a part of churches where the pastor would go to the front door and they would shake your hand as you walked out. So it was a race. <laughs> and being competitive, I like races. And so it was a race. See, if I could beat the pastor, if he could beat me sometimes. So I get it. I understand if you're like that. But you see, I had to learn the hard way of the importance and the value and the need for community. I learned that the hard way by going through a, a difficult time in my life where I felt completely alone, completely empty. And it was at that moment where God began to, to show me what, what a community could be. And I met a group of people as part of that college and career group at the church I was attending, and they loved me and they welcomed me in, and, and they continue to this day make it safe for me to be me. And so these last 20 years, I have found more than I ever dreamed possible uh, about who I am and, and, and relationships and community through these people. But I've also discovered a Jesus that is bigger than I could ever imagine. Because you see, the reality is I can't know all of Jesus on my own. <clears throat> all I can understand is a small, small, finite portion of God in my little itty bitty mind. But as I get to meet other people and as I get to know Maria and as I get to know Ryan and Flo, I get to see Christ in all of them. And so now Christ in them begins to open up and I discover how big our God is. And so we need community for that. But I understand the struggle and the fear. It's real and I get it, but I want to tell you the water is warm. Come on in. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we, we talk about this, this important element of life community, I pray, Father, that you would help us understand it, that we would, we would be willing to trust you, we'd be willing to invite you in to experience that life. And so, Father, speak through me, break down those walls of fear and shame, and allow us to risk being vulnerable, allow us to risk loving one another. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's start with a logical question. And I think the logical question is, well, if this, this community of grace, where you're loved unconditionally, it sounds great. Who doesn't want that? It sounds perfect, in fact. But why is it so hard to find? Why, why does it always fail to measure up or live up to what's promised? Because let's be honest, we've all been hurt being part of a community. Whether it be our family, whether it be our friends, or whether it be a church we've been part of, we've been hurt and we've often learned to not trust others with our heart. And that's sort of what we've learned. And, and the reality is because this community that we're going to try to build and experience is by definition going to be messy. Isn't that exciting? You see, what we want is we want it to be clean. We want it to be safe. We want to make sure that we don't get hurt. But the reality is that is a sterile environment where there is no life. Think about your homes. If your home is always pristine and perfectly clean, there's probably very little happening in that home. But if your home's a bit of a mess, you know, laundry's still yet to be folded and there's still things on the floor and toys spread out because little kids have been playing in there. That means that that is a home that is well lived, well used, and life is happening in there. And so that's good and that's healthy, that's, that's normal. And so the reality is this community of grace is going to be messy because it's built with messy people. And if all you're seeing is everything perfect and pristine, you're not actually seeing the reality of that person. And so you see, while we're new creations and we're made perfect in Jesus Christ because of what he's done on the cross, our souls are very much intertwined with all kinds of lies. There's all kinds of mess in our belief systems and our emotions and our will. And so what ends up happening is as messy people, we make messes. We make messes of relationships, whether it be our marriage, whether it be our friendships, whether it be part of church, or we just make a mess of our life. And you see, that's where this community is so important and is so critical. See, think of it this way. With these messy people, what they're doing is when they, they're putting on this front, it's because they're hiding something. And I often think about horses. How, how many people are you know, familiar with horses? Or you know, ride, ride horses, love horses? They're beautiful animals, aren't they? But, but if you spent any time with horses, you'll discover they are rather skittish. They're easily spooked. 
right? Maybe you're riding on a horse on a trail and like a little small snake runs by and suddenly they panic. And the reason for that is because horses are prey. They're not predators. They know where they fit on the food chain and it's not very high. And so there's all kinds of animals out there that are a threat to them. Life is a threat to them. And so the smallest thing will spook them and cause them to want to run and hide, to escape. A lot of people who are spend time with horses know that after a big thunderstorm, it's important that you go and you spend some time just soothing that horse before you ever get on its back. Because it's been all night terrified by the thunder. All night terrified that maybe it's going to die. And so it needs that reassurance. It needs that calming presence. And I think people are like that. People are, people are skittish because of the vulnerability that we often feel, the, the lack of safety that we often feel in relationships because I'm worried that when you see me, you see what I see. You see the shame that I feel. You see what's wrong with me and, and, and how I'm not right in so many ways. And, and so like a prey, I'm worried that you're going to devour me. That upon seeing that shame, upon seeing what's wrong with me, you're going to reject me and you're going to send me away. And so I'm easily spooked and it's easy for me to run and hide. And again, all that fear is rooted in the shame that we all experience to some degree. Shame being that, that belief that there's something fundamentally wrong with who I am. That I'm, I'm flawed. That there's something not right, there's something wrong with me, and that's what's causing my, my failures, and my failures have actually rebounded upon me and changed me in such a negative way. And, and a, whether it's a lie or not is irrelevant. I'm believing that lie. And so what I need to do is I need to construct another lie to mask the lie. Isn't that kind of sick and twisted? Where this lie that I construct is sort of the inauthenticity, this mask that I put before you. The problem is with that, that mask is, is we pretend we don't have problems. We pretend that everything's okay. And we don't let others in. We don't let them encourage us. We don't let them love on us. And so we hide and we lie about our struggles. We lie to others, our family, our friends. But most of all, we lie to ourselves. We just keep telling ourselves that everything's okay. I'm not really hurting. It's going to pass. It'll be all right. I just, I just need to, if I ignore it, everything will go, go away. But the problem with that kind of inauthenticity is that I'm rejecting everyone else. And they know it and they see it. Either they see that perfection and they go, you're not letting me in, or they just, they just see you're off because you're pushing them away. You're sending them away because you don't want to let them in. You don't want to let them close. And so what ends up happening is <clears throat> because I'm keeping everyone away from me, I don't get to experience that love and that intimacy. And so what ends up happening now is I, I start to develop a mistrust of other people because I can't actually believe that they would love and accept me. How could they? I mean, I know me, and if they knew me, they would, they would rightly cast me off. And so when people do try to affirm me, when people do say positive things about me, I, I don't trust them. I think now they're lying. There's no way that they, they actually mean that. They're, they're now not being authentic towards me. And, and I start wondering, what's their angle? What game are they playing? What, what you know, network marketing scheme do they want me to sign up for? Am I gonna, is this Tupperware? What's, what's coming? And we start to worry, afraid that they're playing me. And so I hold their love at arm's length. Their, their affirmation, their loves, their, what they're offering to me, I don't actually receive and, and, and envelop. Instead, I just put it to the side. Like a, like a thirsty person giving a, a glass of water, rather than drinking it, I just put it on the table and I remain thirsty. And then, and then what we see in other relationships and in community is that there are some people who are more immature than others. And that immaturity ends up coming across as being self-centered in our relationship. We're, we're basically, we approach relationship based on what do I get out of it? You're here to all meet my needs. And so that's why you've all come to listen to me so I feel good about myself and I feel better. And so you exist for my purpose, for my benefit, for my happiness. 
And so basically I approach the relationship only on, it's a one way thing. What can I get out of it? That's how a lot of people have viewed relationships. That's how a lot of people view even the story of Adam and Eve, that that God wasn't enough for Adam. So we made Eve so Eve and God together could satisfy all of Adam's needs. Now that means God's not enough. Again, it wasn't just to only meet Adam's needs. It was meant to share that life back and forth. God being the source, working through each person. But when we're immature and we're desperate for that love, we're so desperate, we're just wanting to grab it anywhere we can. And so we just think, you know, this person, this person, this person is here to love me and then I'll be okay. But it's sort of like a drowning person coming up to somebody. They're so desperate because they're drowning. They grab onto that person. They start pulling them down. And what's the reaction of that other swimmer? They push them away. And that's what we see happening with some immature people is that they're, they're so desperate for you to love them. They're so desperate for you to meet their needs that they've essentially made you their God and they're trying to suck life out of you. And that's scary. It's overwhelming. And so we, we push them away and we create some separation there, which, which will lead to disappointment. The disappointment of others who failed me, who have not measured up to the expectations I had on them. And that really just confirms that I'm not lovable, that I'm all alone, that I'm not really, I'm not really welcome here. And shame leaps at that opportunity and begins to whisper in our minds, begins to tell us stories that if, that if I was really loved, then they would have reached out to me, that I just need to sit back and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out if, they're gonna, if they really love me, then they'll contact me first. And so I just sit by the phone or by the computer waiting for that message, that invite, all the while beginning to stew because the flesh is just beginning to to whisper more thoughts into me. That if they really loved me, they would have have honored my request. They would have done what I've asked for. That they they would have invited me over to their place or out to that event. That they would have helped me and made my life easier so I wouldn't struggle so much. And you see, it's all about me and what I get out of that relationship. And again, this creates further mistrust in community and, and further pulls us away into that isolation where the enemy can begin to attack even more. And then there's the countless failures of church leaders, of other Christians who fail to live up to what they preach. People who have overpromised but underdelivered. We see the hypocrisy in the flesh again and again and again. I remember, I remember going through a time where the church was going through all kinds of scandal amongst the, the, the church leaders of the day. We had the Jim, uh, Jim and Tammy, uh, Tammy Baker, Tammy Faye Baker or Tammy Baker? Tammy Faye, right? And, and then after that, it was um, Jimmy Swaggart, all kinds of, of scandals, whether it be money or sex, all kinds of problems there. And we see that. And I remember thinking, see, all these Christians are just hypocrites. Amen. <laughs> They're just hypocrites. And, and we would, it gave me a reason to justify excluding them and pushing them away. But again, that's exactly playing into the enemy's hands. Because that vulnerability now, that isolation sets me up. And then lastly, what, what causes these communities to fail, I think, is we, we forget what unites us. See, every community is built around something that brings them together, something to bond them, something to rally around. And, and community requires that. Think about, think about two of the, the big sports teams in Toronto, right? So we have the Toronto Raptors. Their slogan to their fans are, we the North, and they're including you in as part of the team. And it's funny, we, we hear about celebrations how we won the championship in 2019. And I'm thinking, I don't get my ring. I wasn't part of that team. But they're saying you're part of the team because you're part of the fan base. And we all rally around the supporting this team. Or the Maple Leafs, they have the one that says the passion that unites us all. I notice it's not the winning that unites us all. <laughs> Just the passion that unites us all, right? And so we come around and we celebrate that. Again, that's the bond. That's what brings us together. And whether it be a sports teams, whether it be about bands, or whether it be about um, books or movies or, or, or what all kinds of things, there's something that brings a community and unites it together. 
but the community is only as strong as the bond that's uniting them together. And when you forget about that, then that bond begins to fall apart and to break. Let me give you an example. Think about a marriage. When the marriage starts, you're just in love. You're all excited and you love this person. They love you and it's just, it's just wonderful. And you know that you're going to survive anything and everything because your love will get you through it. And so that love for one another unites you and bonds you. And then life starts happening. And life is busy and you got a career and then you start having a family and, and then there's some disappointments and then you realize that that other person isn't satisfying all those needs that I thought they would and they didn't fix all my problems as I thought they would. And so some cracks start to happen. And then some disappointments and some failures and some hurt words and arguments and fights and all kinds of problems begin to further create that wedge. And what ends up happening now is they start looking towards their job or their kids and that's what brings them together. But then eventually you retire from that career or the kids grow up and they move away. And now husband and wife are left looking at each other and they're thinking, what? Why are we together again? What, what unites us now? And so now they feel free to drift apart because they forgot what brought them together in the first place. It wasn't the job. It wasn't the kids. It wasn't their family. It was that love for one another. And so when you forget what unites us, you're in trouble. I think that's what we're seeing in our society right now. We've forgotten what unites us as Canadians. We've forgotten what unites us simply as, as humanity, as, as humans. And instead, we've, we've been allowed to divide ourselves, this wedge that has separated us into these political factions and this for and against. And, and I love how Joy shared the story of, jo, of Joshua this morning. Are you on this side or you're on this side? Are you for me or against me? And I love God's answer, neither. Uh, that's the wrong question. It's not, am I on this side or that side? The question is, are you on my side? I've come to lead this army. Are you on my side? And so what ends up happening is we, we get all distracted in this in our nation, but, but it even happens in our churches where our churches start to get fixated on a program or, or how worship is supposed to sound or look or, or maybe on a building or, or maybe this idea of keeping everything looking good and this pursuit of excellence and, and order and everything wonderful. Or, or maybe we even become fixated on, on solving all of society's problems. What ends up happening is we forget about our first love. We forget about Jesus. And when that happens... No matter how wonderful or how good your fixation is, when you replace it with what should be Jesus' place with something else, you're bound to fall apart. So you can see all the pitfalls. You can see all the, the, the ways in which community fails. Why bother risking it? Because let's be honest, what are you risking? What are you putting out there? It's not just a few bucks. It's not just, ah, if it works, great. If it doesn't, oh, well. You, order, you have to put your heart on the line. You have to be willing to be vulnerable and put yourself out there in a way that you could get, get hurt really bad. So why, why bother risking it? What's the reward? Isn't it better just to, to lower the expectations, put up a nice thick wall and, and a nice boundary and pull back just so I can keep safe? Well, there, there are a few reasons. Number one, being a part of a community actually protects us from that kind of misery, that kind of pain and despair that's going to come from isolation. There have been many studies done on people who work in isolated environments, whether it be uh, in a science station in, in Antarctica or whether it be on the space station in outer space. When they're there for an extended period of time, so each of the person there has reported that loneliness is the most difficult part of the job. Some people even start to begin in a lonely environment to begin to hallucinate. One person talked about, you know, going through the jungle and he began to hallucinate, sort of like Tom Hanks and Wilson, creating these friends because that isolation was so hard, so difficult. See, it's damaging not just to our mental health, but also to our physical health. 
They've seen how that isolation actually breaks down and, and weakens your immune system, making you more susceptible to physical illness. But again, the mental being probably the biggest. It's why solitary confinement is either banned or used only at last resort, only in extreme cases, because in many ways it's a form of torture. And ironically, we do that to ourselves by pulling away, putting up these bars that we think will protect us, we think will keep us safe, only to discover they're now our prison bars that keep us trapped. So not only is it not good for your own health, but what ends up happening is the second reason that we need community is that without it, the enemy has a field day on us where we become incredibly vulnerable to his attacks. Solomon, wise King Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes 4, beginning verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. See, our enemy wants us to be alone because now he can whisper all kinds of things into our minds, all kinds of stories, all kinds of ideas, all kinds of thoughts about what happened to us and what others are doing and who other people are. And it begins to twist us, begins to amplify that shame because shame always multiplies in that isolation, in that darkness. So flesh begins to talk to us about other people and how we see them gets twisted. Either we think they're judging us, they're always looking down on us, they're they're seeing that shame and and, and they don't want to be around us and yeah, they may smile, but it's just a fake smile. It's just just them being kind, but, but really they can't really tolerate us. In fact, we might even begin to believe that they would be better off without me. And whether that means I leave the relationship or that means I pull back or sometimes even that I'd be better off dead. All of that is the lies of the enemy that is being played out in that isolation. Or what might also happen is that that person maybe becomes a monster in our mind where everything they've done gets amplified, gets twisted. And so on a, on a scale of offense of zero to 10, 10 being high, zero being low, what used to be a three becomes a seven. What used to be a five becomes a 10. And what is a nine is now a 19. And now we view that person as a monster, as almost subhuman, as of worthy of that disdain, of worthy of that anger, of worthy of that bitterness, worthy of the name calling and the mistreatment that I'm now actually justified in my hatred of that person. Because reality is now that person's evil. And so it's easy now to label them and smear them. And I see it's actually employed in this world where you're not supposed to humanize your enemy. Think about that. Think about how sick and twisted that is. But it makes it easier to do some really horrible things towards them because they're no longer human anymore. And so now we are, we're seeing our friends and we're seeing our family and we're seeing our loved ones as people not worthy of trusting simply because maybe they disagree with us or because they have a different opinion or because of what they've done. All sick and twisted up in our mind by the enemy. So how do we, how do we create and how do we protect this, this community, this community of grace that we all need, that is, is mandatory. It's not good for man to be alone. Well, I think first off, we have to remember what unites us. Philippians 2, 1 to 4, Paul writes, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, what's going on in this world, we're all, we're all being touched by it. Unless you're, you're really off of social media and you're not watching the news and, and you don't talk to people, you're going to be impacted by the level of frustration and anger out there. And I have a, I have a very, very good friend very, very good friend who, who's pulled away and we don't, we don't connect anymore. And, and we've, he's pulled away because of, well, quite frankly, we forgot what, what unites us. And I found myself this week turning him into a monster, thinking that he was wrong and he needs to be corrected. And then if I say this to him and then that will expose how wrong he is. And then clearly he's going to have to repent. But I realized I, I'm, I'm losing that love for my brother. Someone that's so dear to me and so important to me. Because I forgot what unites us. You see, what unites you and I is, is not your race. It's not your gender. It's not your musical preference. It's not your income bracket. It's not your choice of sports teams. It's not the preference of where you buy your coffee. It's not your politics. It's not even our theology. What unites us is our common love for Jesus Christ. What unites us is what Jesus has done for us. And that is always going to be bigger than what divides us. We need to come back to that. We need to remember that. And if we do, if we can remember that unity, as Paul wrote in Philippians, then we can experience that togetherness. And what's interesting is Paul, Paul talks about that unity is not something you have to force or create because that's already been done in Jesus. Instead, it's something that we need to protect. It's something that we need to maintain. And so that begins now to, to change, as we saw in Philippians, how are we going to treat one another? You see, based on the love that Jesus has for you and me, now I can approach others in that same way. Romans 15, 7 says, just as God accepted you, so are you to accept others. Because God accepted you and me unconditionally, despite our flaws, despite our sins, despite our struggles and our immaturity, I get to offer that to other people. I get to offer it to John, despite his immaturity, despite it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we no longer view him in that way any longer. Meaning that we don't judge one another based on what you do. Based on your failings, based on your flaws, based on your mistakes, based on your sins, your habits, your addictions, the shame you struggle with. That's not how we judge one another. No more. Instead, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're already a new person with a new heart. What we have here now is, is Christ and Tim. And Christ and Tim is perfect. And though I may disagree with Tim from time to time, because he's wrong. <laughs> Uh, it's nice to have a microphone. <laughs> and I might be wrong. I'll say that. He's a new person in Jesus. And he is a holy, righteous brother in Christ. And that's what I need to remember about Tim. That's what I need to hold on to. And so because of that, because of who he is now, I get to offer him grace. The freedom to fail. The freedom to make mistakes freedom to be a work in progress, the freedom to be immature at times. I get to offer him patience and understanding, a willingness to actually listen, a willingness just to sit with him and not try to fix him, and the benefit of, of doubt, and a determination now to actually fight on his behalf and on others' behalf to continually choose to offer love and forgiveness. And it will be messy. I promise you that. Careless words will be said. Hurtful things will be done. 
People will fail and shame will make you act weird. But I'm telling you, it's worth fighting for. Now, does that mean that that we just become a doormat, that we just abandon all healthy boundaries and, and just walk away from things? No, not everyone's ready for that kind of intimacy. Not everyone is trustworthy for that kind of intimacy. And, and, and really what you're offering is this vulnerability and we're to do so in a wise way. And so we offer a little bit to show that that person's being trustworthy and then we can offer them more. And so it's important to understand, you know, where people are at. And not everyone's going to be best friends. I mean, we're not going to be all part of one large, small group. That's just not possible. And so having healthy boundaries are good because it helps us to discover who's, who's able to receive and experience that kind of intimacy. But those boundaries are not meant there to be in permanently put in place. Those boundaries are there to help us figure out who's safe and then to let them in. Which means that this kind of community is going to take risks. It's going to take gambles on our hearts. But I'm telling you, it's the safest gamble out there. In many ways, because God is bigger than the hurts that we might experience. He's bigger than the disappointments we might experience. He can heal anything and fix anything. But really, what am I offering? What am I risking? I can't get any more loved or any less loved than I am today. And if if I'm hurt by, by my brother or by my sister, Jesus is there to heal me. But please understand, safe does not equate to comfortable. I meant to bring up a book here. I don't know, Hannah, do you want to go in my bag and, and grab the book, Bo's Cafe? I knew I was going to forget it. Hopefully it's in my bag. Bo's Cafe is an incredible book written by, by friends of ours, John Lynch, Bill Thrall, and Bruce McNichol. And, and uh, I highly recommend any, everyone who hasn't read this book to read this book. It's a very uh, well-written book, and it's, a, it's an example of what community can be like. And I remember reading it before we, we launched the New Life as a Church. I thought, this is, this is what I want to create. This is what I want people to experience. And, and, and he's talking about now what it means to be safe. And he says that safe is not just nice and sweet, where everyone's smiling and, at you and nobody's dealing with nothing. He says, that's not safe, that's a retirement home. I like nice. Even, even Hank likes nice. Push comes to shove, n- nice wins. But nice ain't enough for safe. A safe place isn't a soft place. Safe is a place where you get the worst about you, where you can get out the worst about you, and they don't run you off, talk you down, or head for the hills. It's, it's having someone to stand with you when you start to face the shameful stuff. It's where you can be a jerk and still have a place at the table the next day, where you don't have to hide or fake or pretend or bluff. Safe is being loved more for revealing your crap, not less. Safe is not having to man up or be coerced to get real or none of that nonsense. See, the deal isn't about just to let everybody hear your garbage. Who wants that? Who needs that? I can get that in my own head. Safe was where I can tell you my garbage so you can enter in and stand with me in the solution of it. That's safe. It's not about getting fixed. Because you and I aren't broken. We were fixed on the cross. And we're being conformed, we're growing up, and we're maturing. But we don't need to be fixed. We need to be is loved and to be known. And that's what this community is able to do. It, it creates a place where you can be known above all else. Where you can experience Jesus and his love and his acceptance and therefore experience that acceptance through another person where you can find support, where you can find people who care enough about you to protect you even when and especially when you fail. And you may even find healing. Again, let me, let me quote from this book. This, this character, Andy, he's talking to his friend and 
Or Stephen's talking to his friend Andy, and he says, Andy, something is wrong. I exploded my wife, my associates, sometimes even my daughter Jennifer. It's a real thing. I've done it for a long time. I believe you, he says. Do you want to rage right now? I can pull over. I look back at him blankly. Otherwise, I need lunch. What do you say we head out to one of my favorite places? They serve a shrimp cocktail that will cure rickets. It's not, this is not conventional shrimp cocktail. This puppy's got some purple onions, cucumbers, and a big fresh shrimp. And they serve it on a plate. On a plate, for crying out loud. What is with you, Andy? What's with me, he asks. I'm not the loud, angry guy. <laughs> he looks over long enough to see that I'm not smiling. Then slowly and clearly he says, Stephen, I understand that you have an anger issue. I get it. I understand it's a big deal. It hurts people you care about. I believe you. I also believe you that you don't have much confidence that I or anyone else can help you. And so you're playing it like a trump card so you won't get too close. You threw that out in hopes of ending our times together. He continues looking ahead as he speaks. Look, Stephen, I have no desire to be your fixer. I want to be your friend. And friends learn to trust each other with their stuff so that they can stand together. That and they borrow tools. So the more you can let me know the real Stephen, the more I can let you know the real Andy, and the sooner we can begin to sort things out. That's it. That's my angle, period. I'm not scared off by your arrogance, your anger, or your rudeness. Now, you start ripping up my upholstery with a box cutter, and that might freak me out a bit. If you want, we can turn this car around and be done with the whole thing. Or a guy with a real anger issue sitting next to an equally flawed man could go have some lunch. Angry people eat, don't they? Fred's, friends learn to trust each other with their stuff so they can stand together. That's, that's the angle. That's the goal. That's, that's my agenda. That's, that's the agenda of us as elders. Is that we would create a community that people can just know that they're loved. That there are people who are willing to stand with them and love them no matter what. Not trying to fix them, but just trying to love them. But it means you have to be willing to risk it. it means you have to be willing to open up. It means you have to be willing to engage in it. Two ways. Sometimes to receive that love and sometimes to offer that love. But that's, that's what we get to do. And we get to support each other and love each other. And that is critical, especially in this time. Let me, let me close again by, by reading. Let me close by reading again Hebrews chapter 10. And listen to what Paul writes here, or the writer of Hebrews, I should say. But we know it's Paul. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. What unites us? Jesus, right? I mean, it's a safe bet here, right? Nine times out of 10, you say Jesus and you'll be right. So let's try that again. What unites us? Jesus. There you go. So let's hold fast to that, that faith in him because he's faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How do we encourage one another? How do we build one another up? How do we invite people into life together? Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Let's not pull away. Let's not withdraw. Let's not isolate from each other. And again, that has nothing to do with Sunday morning. That's about life. I really believe this in my heart that Monday to Saturday is more important than Sunday morning. And if we as a church can, can focus on doing Monday to Saturday well, Sunday morning will take care of itself. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you see this end drawing near. I don't, I don't know exactly when Jesus is going to return. And anytime anyone says, I've got a date, I get skeptical. But I know today's one day closer than it was yesterday. But I look around this world and there are things that I see happening that I, I couldn't have imagined happening. 
fact, just a couple years ago, and Joy likes to point this out, I thought this would never happen. Too far-fetched. And now I'm finding out that what she was sharing was just a spoiler alert. And there are things that are, that are building and, 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 and things are falling apart even more so. I don't know if it's going to get all put back together again. I don't know. But I know when I read about when Jesus returns, he describes a world that is not good and healthy. Describes a world where people, their hearts are cold to one another. They've turned on one another. Parents and children and friend to friend. And then the world is ripping apart at the seams. And so when I look at this world, I'm convinced that Jesus is coming soon. I don't know how soon. But if that's the case, Paul says, all the more important that we encourage each other. All the more important that we look out for one another. And so that's why we gather. Not to impress God because he's not keeping attendance, but so that we can love one another and support one another and look after each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you, <clears throat> you didn't let my fear and my shame control me. That instead, you use that loneliness, that discomfort to bring about a change in my life that I was now willing to trust you with other people. Be willing to open my heart to, towards others and I, I found a group of people that loved you and therefore loved me. And I got to experience you and get to know you through my, my dear friends. And I'm so grateful for that. And I pray, Father, that each of us here now would be willing to take that risk again. Continue to trust, continue to open up, continue to allow others to protect and to love us. And that we would, as a result, show this world what it means to love. Because there's nothing more attractive than that kind of love, which is your love. And I pray that we will be ready then to share the gospel, to be ambassadors of Christ and let them know that you've done everything and that they can be reconciled to you and be united with our group, be united in you as a result. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.